Sex is the life force energy that runs through us all. The link between sex, creativity, and the sense of aliveness is strong. Can you use sexual energy for your spiritual evolution? Or perhaps for emotional healing? Is it even possible? Clinical sexologist Dr. Martha Tara Lee will explore all these and more on the Eros Evolution Show here on Ohm Times Radio and TV. Hello, hello, and welcome to Eros Evolution on the Om Times Radio Network. My name is Martha. I am a relationship counselor and clinical sexologist. And uh, today's show, we are talking about uh, being polyamorous while Asian. So what is polyamory? Is this just a fad or trend? Is this just something that uh, is uh, popular and uh, is going to go away after some time? So what should we know about it and how do people who are poly navigate this lifestyle? So in this episode, uh, I'm having uh, Michelle who runs polyamorouswildasian.com who will discuss all this and more. So a little bit more about Michelle. Uh, Michelle Hai, H-Y, is from... Portland, Oregon, and seeks to destigmatize non-poly uh, non-monogamy and amplify the voices of other POC uh, person people of color who are significantly underrepresented in the non-monogamous con- communities. I agree. She works to educate from an intersectional lens, offers peer support sessions, and touches on po- topics related to body confidence, sex positivity, and more. So you can follow her on Instagram at polyamorous while Asian and learn more, learn more via her website as well. That's polyamorouswildasian.com. So welcome, welcome, Michelle. Hi, thank you for having me on. Yeah, thanks for coming. So it's uh, 9 a.m. in Singapore and 5 uh, p.m., uh, 5.05 or 9.05 a.m. Singapore and 5.05 p.m., um, the previous day uh, in US. So yeah. tell us a little bit more about yourself, your background, uh, what you do, where you come from. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, my name is Michelle Hai. I'm born and raised in Portland, Oregon. My family is from Taiwan and China. Uh, my educational background here in Portland uh, is in applied linguistics, which I, <laughs> I got that degree knowing that I wasn't going to do anything specifically with that degree, but it was very interesting. And I got my, you know, college piece of paper. Um, these days I work in social media and yeah, I started the Instagram polyamorous while Asian um, basically right when COVID started um, just to talk about my experiences with polyamory. And because um, I didn't see a whole lot of other polyamorous Asians um, being very public on social media. And so I thought, oh, I feel like I have the comfort and safety to be able to be out and talk about it. So why not talk about it? Yeah. So what has been the response? Um, yeah, it's uh, the response was a lot um, better than I think I had anticipated when I started out um, because I thought maybe I would just be kind of this anonymous voice spewing out my opinions to maybe two people. But um, apparently it seemed to resonate a lot. Um, I think both in you know talking about polyamory very openly and then talking about polyamory um, as a person who isn't white, which like especially in the United States, um, polyamory is definitely seen as like a white person thing. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, it, it just it just seems to resonate with a lot of people. I don't claim to be like an expert. Um, I've been doing non-monogamy for about 10 years, but yeah, I, I don't claim to be like a professional expert. I just really talk about my own lived experience. Um, and yeah, a lot of people seem to connect with that. 
I love it. Uh, and I love the fact that you are putting yourself out there and speaking out for yourself and also for the intersection of uh, people who are poly and also people who uh, identify as Asian. Um, that was why I was very, very drawn to your Instagram. I was actually consciously and I have been consciously looking out for Asian representation around positive sexuality for the last, uh, especially the last two years. When mm-hmm. I first started as a sexologist um, 13 years ago, uh, I felt very, very alone, uh, very lonely and um, uh, very isolated from my colleagues in the U.S. Um, and all around the world, but especially U.S. since I studied in the U.S. And so it's it, um, I realized that uh, even though I feel that I don't speak well, with my Asian Singaporean accent, mm-hmm. even though I feel that I don't speak well, I felt it was really, really important to uh, put messages around sexuality out there because um, even if I'm not the best, you know, because um, to have clients saying that, oh, I've never like heard anybody who's Asian talk about sex positively, or mm-hmm. um, uh, I've never uh, I've never seen anyone embrace their sexuality, you know, uh, or this is a white people thing. Um, mm-hmm. It's it's really really painful to hear. So yes, uh, you, you, you and I are really, um, really seeing the importance of representation. But for listeners out there who don't understand what is polyamory, maybe you can uh, explain. Yeah, yeah. So polyamory falls under the broader uh, term non-monogamy. Um, polyamory uh, generally means having, having or being capable of having multiple romantic and or sexual relationships at the same time. Um, People who use the term polyamory generally focus more on like the romantic um, aspect of it um, because there are other parts of non-monogamy that maybe are less romantic but focuses more on having sex with multiple people um, uh, at the same time. So yeah, that, that's basically what polyamory is in a nutshell. Some people like to um, you know combine their lives, like live under the same roof and have same finances. And then people like me, like I identify as solo polyamorous, I prefer to live by myself while having several partners that, um, you know, I can see uh, every once in a while, while basically still living my own life. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. So of course, I think uh, uh, being Asian, I'm sure you get this a lot. What do your parents think? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah, that's always a huge, huge question. Um, So my philosophy um, basically with regard to like the the coming out um, kind of talk is that I think coming out can be very important, um, but I think it's a bit overstated in how important it ha- has to be. Like, I think a lot of people think that like, oh, you have to always come out to everyone in order to be like, um, you know, uh, proud in your identity and to be valid in your identity. So with regard to family, um, the only person who knows like everything about my life is my sister. Um, and yeah, we're super close. And so she knows that I'm polyamorous and whatnot. Um, but my, uh, my family doesn't know. Um, and it's not something that like, I feel like I don't feel too stressed about because it's not like I, um, am actively hiding it all the time. It just doesn't come up because the way that our family dynamic is, it's a lot of like, don't ask, don't tell about personal stuff. Um, unfortunately a lot of that very non-confrontational um kind of emotionally distant sort of dynamic unfortunately um but yeah so it's one of those things where if it ever does come up which eventually it will um then I'll talk about it but at this point I'm not going to rush the conversation because it's just going to be too much work 
trying to explain it to them and trying to be like, oh, accept me for this because I don't really need their acceptance. Um, I'm just doing it. Um, it's just a lot of emotional labor that um, can wait till later. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, precisely. I mean, we are adults now and this is your life to lead and it's really important that you be happy. And uh, also, it's it's a journey of uh, for us, it's like finding ourselves and we need to be really clear uh, within ourselves uh, who we are, what we like, and uh, it's less important what they think because if mm -hmm. we keep living our lives the way our parents want us to live our lives, then uh, we will really never be truly ourselves and never really truly happy. Yeah, so yeah. I, I respect you for that. I respect you for um, understanding the difference and uh, knowing that um, regardless of what they say, like it's really not that important. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, yeah. So there's this question. Do you know what is WMAF? Um, no idea. What was that again? <laughs> WMAF. WMAF. I don't think I'm familiar with that. Oh, Okay, so it's a white male, Asian female. What do you oh, think about oh, that? Oh, yes. Okay. Okay. Uh, yes. <laughs> yes. Uh -huh. I have that's, lots to say about that too. It's very prevalent. Very prevalent. And um, yeah, like uh, so, being in Portland, Oregon. Portland, Oregon is um, literally still one of the whitest cities in the United States, and it has a very um, and the, the reason why is because it has a very racist history. Um, and, uh, talking earlier about how polyamory is seen as like a white person thing, oftentimes that's because a lot of, um, you know, white people have more of the privilege to move through the world as polyamorous without as much repercussion, not, not to say that there aren't any repercussions, but not as much. Um, so in Portland, of course, uh, we do have a solid little polyamorous community. Most, most people are white. Like any event that I've gone to, I'm one of maybe of handful of people who are you know people of color and um and so yeah i have partners who are white because of the uh because of the dating pool here and um but yeah i also have a lot of thoughts on the yeah white male asian female uh dynamic or stereotype or kind of fetish yeah yeah i, I think there's a lot of generalizations around what asian people are like i guess uh around us being more feminine or more easygoing, more mm -hmm. uh, eager to please and all these stereotypes. I, I really think um, we need to let go of all that and just look at people as the individuals that they are. Yeah, yeah, it's, it is unfortunate. Like dating as, you know, an Asian, as an Asian woman, like, like on dating apps, you know, if, if when people see, usually white men see that like I'm polyamorous and I'm bisexual and I'm, um, you know, kink friendly, um, like they, a lot of people, unfortunately, feel that that's like an invitation to just kind of be objectified. And like you said, there's a lot of that stereotyping around like, oh, the demure Asian, like submissive woman, kind of like that Madam Butterfly narrative. Um, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's um, kind of can be kind of tiring to kind of sift through that kind of person or even people who maybe on the outset seem like they might be okay still having to kind of test and make sure that this person isn't like basically dangerous isn't going to you know fetishize or just objectify me yeah yeah definitely when i hear um uh, things like that around how asians are like and how men women are like it's usually a warning sign for me that uh, mm -hmm. this person is not really 
uh, walk. This person is still <laughs> stereotyping and uh, may not be a good partner for me. So, uh, so I'm really curious, like, uh, how did you actually realize that you are poly? Yeah, so um, I'm 28 now. Um, it started 10 years ago, basically. I remember it was like January, February of uh, like 2012. So I was about 18. Um, and I was introduced to it by my first um, boyfriend at the time. And there's a lot of red flags. Like he, um, he already had a girlfriend and he, so he wanted to introduce the concept of non-monogamy to me, but he didn't tell me directly. He told me to read a book called Sex at Dawn, which talks about non-monogamy. And so I remember reading that book and being like, oh, I think I understand why he's giving me this book. But also reading the book, um, a lot of what it was talking about with regard to non-monogamy in humans um, just made sense. It just kind of clicked. And I was like, oh, wow, because um, my parents had divorced when I was young. And so I think I developed these misgivings around conventional monogamy and marriage and things like that when I was young. Um, so this book helped give me the vocabulary for it. And it helped me feel that like, oh, my thoughts weren't all that weird. Um, thinking that monogamy wasn't, you know, the one right way or perfect. Um, so yeah, so with that, um, it was very clumsy going into it, a lot of blind leading the blind, but that's basically how I started out. Mm. Yeah, so what happened to that that person? Because it sounds like he wanted you to cheat with him. <laughs> um, so yeah, at that time, um, so I was 18. That was my first relationship ever. So I hadn't ever had a monogamous or non-monogamous relationship. Um, and as I understand um, him and his uh, already established girlfriend at the time, they knew. So like they both knew. It was just me that didn't know. So it wasn't necessarily that I was like, you know, that he was cheating um, with me. It was just more that he was keeping me in the dark and it just wasn't very ethical um, the way he was doing it. Um, however, like with that relationship, I think because I was young um, and yeah, the person was like much older than me. So I think I uh, just kind of followed him because I thought he just had more experience. Um, but also that being the first relationship, um, me just having not a whole lot of experience with relationships in general, that lasted about five years. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, <laughs> I broke up with the person, but I knew that the non-monogamy part worked really well. So I stuck with the non-monogamy part and I still have partners that I met, you know, during that relationship that are still around today and, and they're wonderful. Yeah, got it. So it wasn't cheating because everybody in the relationship knew about it. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was you who needed to read more about it. So besides Sex at Dawn, uh, which other books uh, or resources has been useful for you? Yeah. Um, so I think in the beginning, I didn't read a whole lot of books. And back then, there weren't as many books. Like these days, um, there are so many more books. Um, back then, like more than two was probably the biggest um, non-monogamy book, although I don't really recommend it anymore because one of the authors is like a lot of, you know, abuse allegations against him. And also the book is just so outdated at this point. Um, but there's books called like Opening Up by Tristan Tormino. Um, there's The Smart Girl's Guide to Polyamory. Um, there is, uh, oh, there's um, one that I read like a couple years ago called Polyamorous, Living and Loving More. And I read that because uh, it's written by an Asian uh, Canadian. 
And that has a lot of uh, really good anecdotes and good resources about polyamory. And so those are really good. Um, and lots of, there's so many podcasts these days about non-monogamy as well. There's, yeah, so many resources. That's great. Um, yeah, so I um, I read the book, The Erotic Mind, and it, it blew my mind. And mm -hmm. uh, that was also uh, my introduction to polyamory as well, uh, even though they weren't talking specifically about it, but um, it helped me to understand that uh, that it's just different things for different people. That's all. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's really... I mean, you know, talking about uh, not just like relationships, but like sexuality, you know, like in your line of work, just how expansive and how just wide and vast like human sexuality is. And <laughs> to try to put us all in some little like conventional box is just so, so silly. Yeah. Mm, yeah, I agree. Um, so would you say that, uh, um, you know, the fact that you live by yourself, you have multiple partners, do you ever have that fear? Uh, I guess maybe because you're a younger person, do you actually have that fear that uh, life will be passing you by and uh, in the end, uh, you end up with nobody or some, something along those lines? That definitely comes up. Yeah, yeah, that definitely comes up because it is kind of uncharted territory because there's a lot of like the scripts when you like get together with someone, you get married and you move in, like there's the whole scripts of life where it's like, oh, till death do you part. And like you combine finances and you have your, you know, retirement fund together and whatnot. Um, so this is unscripted and un uncharted. And so I do um, think about this every once in a while, like what will like, you know, the end of my life look like, you know, hopefully it'll be, you know, uh, amongst like a community. Hopefully in the next several decades, I'll have built more community and have um, built more um, uh, family, family that are like constructed a family that isn't quite so conventional and, um, you know, part of the norm. And, um, and also, I also acknowledge that, you know, what my wants and needs now aren't necessarily going to be my wants and needs, like, you know, five years from now, like, who knows, maybe I'll want to live with partners again. Um, I just know that right now I um, am a bit better off uh, just kind of like doing my own thing. Uh, but yeah, yeah, all that, that like crosses my mind all the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's important to revisit what we want because what we want does change with time. Mm -hmm. And uh, I love what you said, um, having a community around you. Uh, yeah. And uh, what about kids? Have you thought of it? Or Yeah. Personally, I've decided that I'm not interested in having kids of my own. Um, I, I'll stick to cats and, and also I, um, because I'm also the, like the oldest of four girls. So like I played, you know, little mommy <laughs> growing up as well. Um, and so I, I do enjoy being like, like the sister role. Um, I enjoy like the, the auntie role. Like if, you know, my, whenever my sisters, you know, have children or whatever, or whenever partners have children or whatever, I very much look forward to, you know, being that auntie figure, however um, that works out uh, amongst us all. Um, but yeah, kids of my own, I am not interested in. Mm -hmm. mm. That's, 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 uh, that's good that you, you figured that out. Uh, early rather than uh, what I went through um, for a very long time I wanted to have kids and mm -hmm. I just didn't find a partner and because my biologi biological clock was ticking so it, it was almost this uh, this thing around like I need a partner so that I can have a kid if I don't have a partner I don't have a kid and therefore I need to find a partner and why am I still single blah 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 
And uh, so only last year, I finally let that go. And now I'm in so much, I'm feeling so much peace within myself. And I'm stepping into being the village elder, being the auntie. Yeah. So it's nice. Mm -hmm. It's nice to, um, um, uh, sometimes uh, life doesn't give you what you want. And, um, and that's okay too, you know, because there's so many other things uh, that life has to offer. And um, sometimes things happen for a reason. And uh, I, I'm glad that uh, you decided uh, early. So it's like, um, not something that you have to keep grappling with uh, for the long term. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. So anyway, um, like, you know, like what you mentioned, things can change and it's all okay. And frankly, what we decide is none of anybody's business. Exactly. Yeah, but, exactly. But I'm glad you're sharing with us. I'm glad you're sharing with us. Because <laughs> I, I, I think, yeah, life is, uh, life is difficult, you know, uh, with global warming, with um, all the uh, challenges around our economies. I think if we can just even take care of ourselves, uh, that is already uh, such a big deal for uh, in a lot um, of situations. Yeah. 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 No, I feel like that. That is what I feel like sometimes. Where it's like I, I, uh, you know, stress myself out enough just taking care of myself, and to think that um, you know by the time that you know my like when my mom was this age, she already had my sister and I, and that blows my mind. I'm like, wow, <laughs> how did she do it? Um, but yeah, yeah, I, I think, you know, like taking care of ourselves is great. And like, um, I like to advocate for a very like a mindful selfishness. Like I think selfishness is often said as like just a just purely a bad thing. Um, but I think it can be very important to like, yeah, take care of the self in order to take care of the community, you know, like fill my cup up so that I can help, you know, fill up the cups of everyone else in my community. And I think, yeah, that's like a, uh, like an altruistic, generous uh, selfishness. Yeah. Yeah. I really, really love that. I love it. Um, I, I, I think I'm along those lines as well, because if we are desperate and needy and uh, clingy, it actually really doesn't serve anybody. I know so many relationships where they put all responsibility onto their partner and it's about shaming and blaming others and really they're not truly stepping into their power. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, what are some of the, I, I'm sure you, you know of a lot of uh, people in the community as well. So what are some of the, I guess, the misconception and mis- around uh, polyamory that you would like to debunk? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess, I mean, there's so many, but I think some of the big ones are like, some people think it's it's just all about uh, being irresponsible and having sex and just having fun. Um, <laughs> so, um, and that it's not about commitment, that it's not about, you know, building life together, that it's just about sleeping around, like, um, you know, and being immature. Um, there are a lot of people who do build families together in polyamory. There are a lot of people who do, um, you know, create lifetime commitments in polyamorous dynamics. But also, I think there's also nothing wrong with just kind of like having fun, as long as we're ethical and, you know, we're responsible and we don't just use other people. Um, and I, that's probably one of the biggest ones, that it's all about orgies and sex and stuff. And it's like, no, a lot of it's actually pretty boring, you know, like board game nights and, you know, just having dinner <laughs> together and stuff like that. Um, yeah, I, I think that's probably the biggest uh, misconception. And uh, one of the other ones is that, like, you know, if someone's jealous that they can't be polyamorous at all, that, like, if you're jealous, that disqualifies you from being, like, a healthy polyamorous person. 
But um, but yeah, like I've been doing this about 10 years. I still experience jealousy and insecurity and it's uh, it still works. Yeah, it still works. And um, it's definitely still doable for sure. So how do you deal with the jealousy? Yeah, I mean, uh, what I've found is that having good partners that like you have good communication with and that are um, receptive um, makes a huge difference um, because I've had partner before that like, you know, when uh, issues would be brought up, it's always like a blame game. It's like, oh, no, it's your fault. You're making me feel this way. It's like, no, 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 no. These days I can be I'm able to bring it up and be like, hey, you know, I'm just I'm feeling this insecurity. Can you talk me through? Can you hold me? Can you I, like have my head in your lap? while you know, like you pet my hair while I tell you about my insecurities and we can talk through it. Um, and also just developing better ways to like self-soothe and to have better like uh, internal narratives around, you know, my self-worth and trying to soothe my like fear of rejection and abandonment. So a lot of tools, a lot of practice. <laughs> yeah, because jealousy for me is the fear of uh, losing out, fear of not being good enough, fear of being replaced. But I also think uh, jealousy is uh, also linked to a fear of losing control. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And, um, and that is that can be scary with the non-monogamy because yeah, it isn't like the on rails scripted kind of experience, which monogamy is still very hard, still very hard, even with all the scripts. Um, but yeah, non-monogamy, it, it does feel like you have less control because your, your partner is allowed to go off and do all these other things where it's like, I mean, any part of any healthy relationship, monogamous or non-monogamous, like, should have autonomy in addition to like um, interdependence. It's just finding the balance that works for the people involved. I agree. Um, I, 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 I think, uh, why is it that we, we think that uh, just because uh, this is in the context of an adult relationship that it needs to be only one person? We mm -hmm. love our parents, we love our friends, we have permission to love uh, different people. And it's, it's just like, how do you choose how much you love your father or your mother? You know, mm -hmm. like, um, why can't you love them both? So similarly, when it comes to relationships, why do people think suddenly when it comes to uh, in a romantic or sexual relationship, it needs to be one person? Um, these are the lenses that we have seen um, society and society has imposed that onto us. And we need to ask ourselves whether this is who we are and whether this really works for us. Mm hmm. Yeah, I often ask people like, yeah, are these relationship structures, are these labels, like, are these labels working for you or are you working, like, are you serving the labels, you know, are the labels serving you or are you serving the labels? Like, are you trying to fit and kind of trim yourself to fit into all these boxes that we've been told, like, are is like the only way? Um, so, like, I also don't blame a lot of people for choosing these boxes because that's often we're presented like it's it's just the only thing we're allowed to do. Um, but yeah, there's just uh, there's so many more options out there. Yeah, I agree. Okay, so we have uh, a break and uh, we'll be back just after this break. Om Times TV. Imagine becoming a super influencer. Reinvent yourself, invest in your brand, and then manifest your success with a robust spheric approach. Ohm Times Media and Broadcasting offers a unique and multifaceted way to become the spiritual and conscious influencer you deserve to be by putting your message across our powerful platform with its proven record of integrity and excellence. 
Through our produced shows, OM Times offers the opportunity to become a social media TV personality, a radio show host, an OM Times magazine columnist, and a syndicated podcaster, all in one shot. By live streaming your show on OM Times TV and broadcasting it across the extensive OM Times radio and TV networks, you become more than a host. You become an ambassador and a force for positive change. Ohm Times. Open yourself to the possibilities. If I could be you, you could be me for just one hour. If we could find a way to get inside each other's minds. Walk a mile in my shoes. Walk a mile in my shoes. Well, before you abuse, criticize, and accuse, walk a mile in my shoes. Uh, sorry, we are back. I'm drinking tea. <laughs> I drink tea to sell soon. Yes. <laughs> okay, so we are back. Okay, so we talked about uh, misconceptions around polyamory. The first one being irresponsible, um, that polyamory is an uh, excuse to be irresponsible and sleep around. The second one is um, people who are jealous, jealous are not really poly. So I just want to um, add that um, previously, I think I, I told you, Michelle, that I actually had two lovers, two partners who mm-hmm. uh, were both long distance. So we had an agreement to uh, open it up uh, not for me, but but uh, more for them um, to kind of uh, work on having strong foundation on our relationship. And yet at the same time, um, I didn't want to be controlling of their sexuality, considering that we were having long distance. And both times, uh, both people uh, broke the boundaries that uh, we had set Um something as simple as tell me before you go engage with somebody else just tell me before um and then uh both times they didn't they didn't do it and uh, then they turned around and said your rules are just too complicated i can't remember and it was just like one rule it was just one <laughs> and uh what makes that complicated so you know i mean from your experience like what 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 would you have to share about that yeah, I mean, that's, that's very unfortunate. Like you said, like just one rule, like, it's, it's kind of, I mean, it's kind of funny. In polyamory, there's this sort of stereotype that, um, at least within polyamorous community, that we just talk about our relationships all the time. And that some people believe that it's a free for all, that it's all go with the flow, and anyone can do whatever they want. But actually, a lot of polyamorous relationships are a lot about structure. Like it's about creating structure together. So there's a lot of um, boundaries that we have to explicitize and talk about and negotiate and then revisit um, time and time again. Um, Because, you know, uh, like we were talking about before, you know, like our needs and wants evolve through over time. Um, But yeah, so that someone doesn't even like, uh, (laughs) can't even follow one boundary is, is someone who wasn't, I think, in my opinion, tends to be the kind of people who like aren't interested in forming, you know, um, really intimate and trusting um, connections anyway, you know, can't even follow one rule like that. And like that boundary, too, is a very reasonable, very, you know, easy boundary. It's not like you're saying, oh, you can't, 
you know, go off and fall in love with someone. You can't, you know, all, all of these other rules that come up in polyamory that are, I think, a little bit less like realistic. Um, but yeah, so that happens. And people, a lot of people who like agree to non-monogamous structures, um, I think because it's just still um, still pretty fringe and not mainstream enough. Like a lot of people who do claim to be non-monogamous do use that um, as an excuse to be irresponsible and an excuse to, you know, do all the all the things that monogamous people will go, ha, you see, this is why non-monogamy doesn't work because of these, you know, bad people. <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah, those, those are the ones that are, I think, the most visible sometimes. Um, but really that is like a common misconception that like all non-monogamous people do that or want to do that. It's like, no, a lot of non-monogamous people actually want a pretty mundane and very steady um, life. And it's not all about being, you know, crazy and wild and all the time. Yeah. That's exhausting. <laughs> yeah. Agree. Agree. Yeah. I, um, I once went, I went on a date with someone who is, uh, non-monogamous and he made a whole spiel about what it is assuming that I didn't know and uh, <laughs> then wanted to educate me but couldn't explain himself well <laughs> so yeah in the end um, in the end of course uh, I didn't have much respect for him because of the way he carried himself the way he spoke um, and uh, there's this whole uh, primary and secondary as well right Mm, um, yes, I, I, don't, I don't want to be the secondary if I'm looking for a primary relationship. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's more about that. lots of, there can be a lot to be said about hierarchy within non-monogamy. Um, there's, of course, there's, there's certain people that are like, no hierarchy at all. Hierarchy, hierarchy is evil. There are some people who are like, hierarchy is the only way that it can work. And otherwise you have just like a free for all and it's chaos. Um, in my experience and in my opinion, that um, sometimes hierarchy can exist more organically, um, whereas, for example, like I've like I've said, I live alone um, and I you know, don't want to be living with partners or, you know, sharing finances with partners at this time, which doesn't mean that, you know, I'm opposed to supporting partners. But the longest per term partners that I have tend to be people who do live with partners. So they like, you know, they pay rent together, they pay a mortgage together, they have cats together and stuff like that. Um, and so there is a, a sort of natural prioritization where it's like, okay, you know, logistically, there are certain um, responsibilities that they have to take care of together. That doesn't involve me at all, you know, paying bills and, you know, other, you know, life things like that. Um, and that doesn't mean that I'm any less valued. It's just a different set of circumstances and certain things that I'm just, you know, don't have to be involved in. Um, so in one, in one of my relationships, um, I've been with him for about six years now. Um, he has a wife and like they have a house together. And um, we have used the language of like primary and secondary. And when I was first dating him, I was very careful, very cautious, because you, uh, it's very common to have people who are couples, who are polyamorous, who have a lot of very strict rules, and who treat other partners as lesser. And so they'll have like veto rules where it's like, oh, I don't like the person you're dating, so you have to stop dating them now. So I had to um, <laughs> basically make sure that they weren't 
um, one of these couples where it's like, okay, do they have veto rule? You know, how communicative are they? Um, how, uh, you know, how receptive is this partner to my needs and concerns? Um, are they valued just as much? Um, and so at the end of the day, yes, it turned out that, yeah, they, they were good. They communicate well. They don't have veto and stuff like that. Um, so I, I personally don't like 100% shy away from the secondary thing. Like if it means that um, I'm still valued just as much as the other partner, I'm okay with the term because it's just a term. However, if there are couples out there who like need it to be primary, secondary, tertiary, et cetera, et cetera, um, and like all the relationships after the primary are lesser, then that's, you know, a yellow to red flag and that doesn't work for me. And um, I think there are situations in which that can work for certain people, but it, it has like less of a success rate. And yeah, not for me. Got it. Okay. So uh, another thing that I wanted to ask was around uh, rules, right? Because mm -hmm. um, there are also people who argue that um, we shouldn't have rules in relationships. Um, they should be called agreements instead. So mm -hmm. like, uh, what, what do you feel about these uh, languaging around rules and agreements? Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, <laughs> especially since like, I think, you know, like in, in polyamorous communities and like, you know, uh, the wide sub communities within like the LGBTQ plus communities, so much discourse around language and what vocabulary we should use, should stay away from, that sort of thing. Um, I think the distinction between like rules and agreements and boundaries um, don't always matter because sometimes people mean agreements when they say rules and sometimes, you know, people mean rules when they say agreements. And so it kind of depends on the context and ultimately it depends on what that person means when they're saying that. Um, because yeah, like if someone, um, you know, if I'm talking to another polyamorous person that maybe I want to date and they're talking about the rules that they have in re their relationship, it matters more to me what these quote unquote rules are as opposed to just the language of rules where it's like, oh, my, the rule is, you know, like, like in your instance where it's like, oh yeah, we have a rule where it's like, if, um, you know, we're going to go on a date, like I tell my spouse before we go on a date, or if I'm going to hook up with someone, I tell my spouse before I go on a date. To me, that seems like a reasonable rule agreement boundary. Um, if someone were to say, like, I have a, you know, we have this boundary where like, we aren't allowed to fall in love with anyone that we, um, you know, have a relationship with. To me, that would be more of a red flag, you know, even though they said the word boundary and whatnot, that's more of a red flag than the person who said the thing uh, about rules because that the boundary is kind of iffy. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. So it sounds like a lot of work. <laughs> So what, 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 what do you have to say around people who say, oh, it's a lot of work, you know? Yeah, I mean, it is, right? There's, um, I mean, I, I think you should be wary of any non-monogamous non -monogamous person who says it isn't work. But at the same time, monogamous relationships are work as well. And like, we have whole industries. I mean, like, you're, yeah, you're, you're a coach. Like, we have whole industries around relationships being so much work, even monogamy, even um relationships that are more widely accepted like we have whole like movie and tv industries there are books there are like it's <laughs> um 
we're fed that it's like really, really hard work, but it's worth it. Um, and if only people would understand that like, yeah, non-monogamy can be really, really, really hard work, but for, you know, not everyone, but for some people, it's definitely worth it. Um, and I would say that any monogamous relationship that seems too easy might be because they're not, you know, doing a lot of intense inner work. They're not really examining things. They're just kind of avoiding um, things to make it a bit easier. Um, not really challenging themselves or their partner, um, which, you know, every relationship is different. But like, yeah, all relationships are work. Yeah, I, I love it. I love what you're saying because uh, a lot of my clients, they they just simply don't speak up. They don't speak up. They sweep things under the carpet and uh, there's a lot of uh, tiptoeing around each other and uh, all relationships are work and it involves um, being honest, being real, being vulnerable and uh, people do evolve and they are so afraid of their partner changing that they hold on to something and control their partner. So I, I really agree with you that uh, it's all work anyway. So mm -hmm. why, why avoid it if it's something that makes you happy? Exactly. Like it, it, um, it reminds me of, you know, like divorce rates, right? Where it's like, it seems like, um, you know, just speaking from like the United States or whatever, um, you know, the first half of the 1900s, not a whole lot of people getting divorced. But then in the second half of the 1900s, a lot of people, well, not a lot, like much more people getting divorced. And it's not just because like, oh, people don't know how to stay together anymore. It's that people are realizing that they don't have to stay together, that they don't have to pretend to be happy for, you know, 70 years together in a relationship where they can get divorced and find other ways to, you know, fulfill their, uh, you know, needs for connection. And so, yeah, they speak up. They're like, I want to get a divorce. This is best for the both of us so we can continue to live our lives the way we actually want to. Um, yeah. So the, like the importance, I mean, this whole conversation of like um, realizing that there are more options and having the ability and kind of like the, the pathway in order to kind of pursue these options. Yeah. That's really great. So I want to um, find out um, what the situation is like uh, in the U.S. around Asian hate crime, around Asian hate. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, with, with COVID and like with the, you know, our previous like presidential administration and stuff kind of stoking the flame, calling it China flu and whatnot. And, um, and then also just this country's just deep history of, of racism and white supremacy has all contributed to it. Um, you know, the past two years definitely have seen a rise in, you know, hate crimes um, against, you know, Asian populations in the United States, especially toward, you know, most vulnerable people like, you know, elderly, you know, Asian people. Um, and yeah, a lot of people who feel a bit more emboldened, but also, um, you know, uh, COVID has created environments that um, have created more scar scarcity, you know, because it's, it's just, it's it's hard to harder to live for a lot of populations that were already marginalized even before um, COVID, and so I think that's bred a lot more of kind of like um, like infighting as well, and um, I think like blaming a lot of like poor populations on you know like Asian hate crimes or or whatever. But um, yeah, I, I feel like I like went on a tangent there, but. 
yeah, it's not good. <laughs> it's not been good here. And um, yeah, I don't, I don't know what the solution is specifically, but um, yeah, racism has definitely been rearing its ugly head the past couple years, especially. Have you experienced any of it uh, yourself? I've been fortunate that um, I have not um, specifically. I have known people close to me who have um, experienced, fortunately, nothing like physical violence, fortunately, but like my father who lives up in um, Seattle was at a gas station convenience store and the cashier just like, just called him coronavirus. Like it wasn't even creative, but he just like called him coronavirus. Um, but yeah, um, so fortunately, um, you know, people near me haven't had like, um, you know, bodily harm done to them. But there has definitely been an increased sort of tension around this. Yeah. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, over here in Singapore, we are the majority um, Chinese uh, people uh, or people uh, originally uh, from China, from Chinese descent. Uh, we are the majority in Singapore. So we are not as affected. And so I think we also have our privilege of being the majority in Singapore. And so I feel it's really important for us to recognize that um, we do have uh, this privilege and to uh, care about um, what is happening around the world that we live in and uh, speak up when we can. Mm -hmm. So for me, I um, do a lot of uh, YouTube videos for She The People TV. It's a channel um, in India uh, by women for women. Um, and um, they have uh, different experts on that channel. I happen to be the only Asian Chinese. And so I get a lot of comments, uh, not a lot, but quite a number of uh, boycott China. <laughs> you know, like oh. my videos will be boycott China. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I'm, I'm not from China. I've only right. been to China once, you know, <laughs> so there are different kinds of Chinese all around the world. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. yeah, this is the level of, um, of uh, spillover. So now all Chinese are being um, targeted. And uh, yeah, that's not great. Yeah, yeah. I mean, right. In the US too, where it's just like, there's so much like of the <laughs> red, like the holdover of the Red Scare, anti-China, you know, propaganda type sentiment as well. That was definitely stoked in, um, you know, the, uh, well, I mean, it's it's still stoked in, in this administration, but especially in the previous administration. And then, yeah, just clumping a whole bunch of different people together, like targeting people who aren't even Chinese, but just like, oh, you're Asian. <laughs> so you're part of the enemy. Yeah. I see. Yeah, it's, it's really bad. Uh, so it, actually, I do have uh, um, uh, this question, I guess, for my clients, because I do have clients who are navigating, uh, opening up their relationships. And uh, uh, then there's, of course, uh, struggles and resistance uh, around, around it. So can you share how you uh, self-soothe? Because, you know, they get triggered, right? They get jealous. Mm. So how, how does one uh, self-soothe? Yeah, yeah. Um, like this, this is uh, what definitely helped was um, up until about a year ago was, um, you know, was seeing a therapist regularly. So that was super helpful. You know, having someone to talk to that wasn't a partner or, you know, otherwise a close friend or something like that, kind of like a more impartial person to talk to, like that was super helpful, even though unfortunately it's not um, very accessible. Um, 
but yeah, so I think, you know, if people have access to resources like therapy, that can be um, very beneficial, you know, in navigating new relationship structures or just in general. Um, but yeah, with regard to self-soothing, um, like I tend to be like a very, uh, I can be a very anxious person as well. Um, so for me, um, what can help is like having my own space. I mean, I think that's why I live alone because having my own space um, can help me calm down a bit. Um, and um, there's drawing that line of avoiding your feelings versus not letting yourself get like sucked into your feelings. Um, that can be tricky, but distractions can be good. You know, like read a book, go for a walk, watch something um, can help your body like calm back down um, so that it's not like uh, you're so that your nervous system isn't just like super triggered all the time. 